Welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence. We heal by speaking out. So today I have with me Grace Miller and we're going to talk about how we go from a journey of self-harm and self-love and Grace is going to share her own story and what her experience has been like. And I'm so excited to to have you here, Grace. Thank you I'm for so saying yes. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So on this topic of uh, self-harm, which I'm familiar with it from a, I think as a, a trauma survivor perspective and as a therapist working with children and teens and, and adults, and there's all kinds of ways in which we self-harm, right? Yeah. If you can, before we even get started in, into that, though, kind of let listeners know who you are. Yeah. My name is Grace Miller. I am 18 years old. I live in Kansas City with my parents and my little sister. I am attending the University of Kansas in the fall as a political science major. I love politics. I love social justice. I love learning. I love reading. And I love having conversations like this. So yeah, that's who I am right now. I love that. This is who I am right now. That's true though, right? Because mm-hmm. you're only 18. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So regarding like self-harm and yeah. all the ways in which we protect ourselves from pain or try to feel and, and, and express whatever we're going through, can you share with listeners a bit of your story? Yeah. Um, so I think it definitely, um, starts when I was younger, my parents got married pretty quickly after they met. And so there were a lot of things about each other that they didn't know that they brought into marriage without knowing it was going to be brought in. Um, and so by the time I was born, my dad was an alcoholic. Um, my mom was dealing with pretty severe eating disorder and some anxiety and some depression. Um, there were a lot of mental health issues that were going on that weren't being addressed at all. Um, as I got older, my dad recovered from his alcoholism, but, all the mental health issues and like marriage tension was still there and was getting worse. And my parents really tried to like shield me from that. Um, But children pick up on things. Kids know what's going on. Um, And so from a very young age, I knew there were tension issues. I remember thinking many times like, man, I don't think my parents love each other. Um, I could pick up on a lot of my mom's um, mental health issues, which made me really upset. And so I started to develop this um, idea that there were all these issues, but I could not be one of them. So I needed to be the one making everybody happy. I couldn't be the one bringing issues to the table because there were already all these things going on. So I became a really big people pleaser and would just do anything. I mean, I know if you ask my parents, they would say I was like the easiest child ever. It's because I was terrified of making someone unhappy because I already felt like there were a lot of, um, 
there were a lot of unhappy feelings already going on. Um, so that continued to happen. And, um, then I guess we'll just go right into it. When I was nine, I was sexually assaulted. And because of that incident, um, a lot of shame and, uh, self-hatred and confusion and just a lot of conflicting feelings entered my, you know, little body. And I felt like it was impossible for me to discuss that, um, situation with my family because I was like, Oh, that's going to be an issue. And that's going to cause stress and unhappiness within my family. And again, I didn't want to bring more stress into my family unit. So that was something I, completely kept under the rug and tried to push away. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. And yeah. as you were speaking, I was like listening for all of the layers. Yeah. There was what came to mind for me is these are the things that my family and I don't talk about. Yeah. There was the, the stress of what it means to kind of even exist as a family. And then there is the mental health, the mental and emotional aspect, yeah, the addiction, the eating disorders. And then out of that, you're watching this and unbeknownst to them, also internalizing all of that. Yeah. And, and how can I not add stress to the family? And as you even say, I was probably the, the easy child. I wonder, I'm wondering if you were the adult in the room. <laughs> if it felt yeah. that way, not that yeah. you were, yeah. but if it felt like I've, I've got to, in some ways in my little body, make sure that everybody is okay. Yeah. I've always felt that way. And I've always been the kid that's been told, oh my gosh, you're so mature. Like you're so mature for your age. You're like an adult, which really stressed me out being told that. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm six, I'm eight, I'm 12, but I'm being told this. How am I supposed to act appropriately when people are telling me you're so mature? And I'm like, well, I don't want to be so mature. So yeah, that was a very stressful feeling. Well, that makes sense. And since I've met you the last few months, I'm guilty of saying that, but, <laughs> I, but I understand yeah. that when you're told that as a kid, you don't know how to take that Yeah, because you're not at an advanced maturity uh, level, you're not an advanced communicator by choice. It's because that is an act of survival. There, there was no choice. Yeah. And so because of life circumstances, and I was a child that my family of origin would always say, well, I was always older than my actual age. Yeah. And that is a trauma response. It's like, okay, the adults in the room, they're not really doing <laughs> the things in which I need them to do. They, you know, and, and for you, and I don't want to speak to for you, but because obviously I know, I know your mom and dad. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the, the love was there. Yeah. But, but what was missing is these are the things we're not talking about and, and coping yes. well with. Exactly. And, and so some of your needs as a child was unacknowledged, leading you to kind of take care of your own self in certain ways Yeah, as it relates to emotionally. Yes, exactly. That's exactly how I felt. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. Yeah. And what also stuck out to me is when you say it, that children know what's going on and 
I feel like so many people will resonate with that. Not from a parental perspective though, but, but if you've grown up or any listener that's grown up and you remember being in situations as a child and just the adults in the room not realizing that, wait, they, they're aware. Yep. Whether we verbalize the issues or not, there's this big, huge elephant in the room yeah. and our children, they're aware of it. We can't hide it. So I love that you mentioned, mentioned that. And at that time, how did you kind of cope with, with your emotions? And oh, wait, by the way, couldn't verbalize, people pleased, uh, was traumatized at a young age at nine years old. And I don't want to skip over that. That's yeah. really important. And, and couldn't even share with the safe person that this is what's going on because not wanting, you know, having to protect everybody and take care of, of people. But your nine-year-old self, when that happened, was that by another person that was around your age or was that an adult? Um, it was somebody that was just a couple years older than me. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, understand. How were you dealing with your emotions at the time? I think that I didn't even have the language in my mind to even understand how I was feeling. So I think I going along with like the people pleasing personality that I was already developing, I think that got worse to the point where I thought that if I could seek people out who were um, having trouble or were going through things, and if I could quote unquote fix them and be there for them, then it would fix me and make me feel better. And, and I'm nine. So I'm not like seeking out adults, but just like kids on the playground and kids at school that were like lonely or upset. I, I would be drawn to them because I'm like, oh, if I can help them, it'll help me because that's all I could understand in my brain, which, you know, made my parents think I was just this super kind kid, which I was, I was very kind, but it was also because I, I didn't know what to do. And I was seeking people out that I thought maybe were feeling the same way I was. So if I could help them, it would help me. And that, that really got worse as I got older. Um, but yeah, that's what I started doing. What you just stated, it's going to free a lot of people. Because when we talk about people pleasing, that is one way that we protect ourselves from pain, that we try to take care of ourselves. Because if we can't fix and be there for them, then we're not okay. Yeah. And if they're okay, we're okay. So we try to be all the things, the best friend, <laughs> the, the, um, the helper, if there's an underdog, you know, and, and, and I use that term in the most respectful way, but, yeah. but we know the term underdog, but if there's a kid that's being bullied or being shunned, speaking up for, for them, looking out for the one that's sitting at the lunch table all alone. Are you okay? Do you need anything? Yeah being the helper. And that does tend to get worse yeah, over time because in some ways we're also getting fed because now people notice us as, as fulfilling that role. Does that make sense? Oh, yep. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> and then in terms of just your journey into, into self-harm, what was that like for you? Um, when I was I was about 14 when I started physically harming myself. And I think that was because I had got to this point where everything was so overwhelming. My depression, my anxiety, which I didn't realize was depression or anxiety at the time. 
but it was just getting so bad. And that outlet of like helping other people wasn't really working anymore for me, even though I was still doing that and it was getting increasingly worse. It just wasn't working. There was nothing that was working. And I felt like it was impossible for me to ask for help because we never really talked about mental health in my house. And I was also heavily involved in my church and the messages I was getting from church weren't helpful um, in the sense of asking for mental uh, health help. It was just kind of like, you know, the joy of the Lord is your strength, all of that stuff. And I was like, well, I must be an awful Christian. It was just all these things. And I, I felt like I was a failure at 14 years old because I was falling apart and I was a child. Um, so yeah, I started uh, harming myself physically because it was the last thing I could think of to do to cope with how I was feeling. It was so overwhelming and it genuinely did give me a sense of temporary relief and almost control over what I was doing because my mind was spiraling out of control. So it was quote unquote helpful in the moment, but obviously not helpful in general. Um, but yeah, I, I genuinely remember thinking I have failed life. Like what am I, how am I supposed to get up from here? I have failed and I'm 14 and that's was that was definitely like a rock bottom feeling that way as a, a kid yeah so I, i'm i'm doing the math as you're <laughs> and so you're having these experiences and the big trauma at at nine but but also you lived nine years and had been through a significant amount of of stress the depression the anxiety um at a young age and not being able to verbalize. And then at 14, this awareness, like you said, I'm broken. I have nowhere to go. I have nobody that I can talk to. Yeah. And oftentimes in certain communities or church lingo, the church is supposed to be the safe space. (laughs) But oftentimes it's quite the opposite. It's the, it's one of the most painful places to exist. Yeah where shrinking and hiding is the norm. And so was there ever a moment in which you kind of searched out people in church or kind of wanted to trust somebody in church, but just knew intuitively that you just, you just couldn't do that or you tried and it failed? Yeah, there was a moment. um, I was actually in Germany on a mission trip with my church and I was with two of my friends and it was kind of a night where we had done worship. It was kind of emotional in general. And so we had split up to talk about people. And I, and I told these two people that I was hurting myself and that I was like dealing with depression and anxiety and they were sympathetic. But then I remember one of them telling me like, that's the devil and you have to rebuke that. And, you know, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And if you have enough joy in Christ, you won't be dealing with this anymore. And, and they meant that in the best way, but it hurt me so deeply because I was really involved in church and that was kind of my identity at the time. So I took that as I suck at being a Christian. I have failed at that too. Like the most important thing to me at the time, I failed at as well. Um, And so after that, I did not ever talk about it in church with anybody because if I would have gotten that reaction again, that would have just really messed me up. Yeah, that makes sense. And that that canned response, I just find those words at this stage of my life to be a form of violence. Yeah. It leads so many people away from love, away from 
acceptance, away from belonging. It leads people to always feel like what you're saying when you say, well, you need to pray or it's the devil or you need to try harder. What you're saying is that you're not enough. Yes. And that it's your fault, whatever you're going through, whatever emotions that are coming up for you, whatever you're struggling with. When I hear read your Bible or pray, or you need to do this enough or any conversation about the devil, bringing that up, Mm -hmm. that that's the devil in you, or it's an evil spirit that says it's, it's my fault or that I am being punished. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. Yeah. And so 14 years old, I said six years, but I'm not good in math. (laughs) That's okay. I'm not either. So I didn't catch it. (laughs) (laughs) Self-harming. Was this cutting, burning, pulling out hair? How are you exactly self-harming? It was cutting, which added another layer of the shame that I was already dealing with because I felt like I had this one. I had this secret, which secrets can be really shameful. And I already have other secrets that I'm carrying around. So here was another one. And then also I still, I have scars on my legs and for a while they brought a lot of shame as well because people would see them and I could tell like we were wearing your, it's summer, we were swimming. I could tell people would see them. And then I felt ashamed. I felt guilty. I was just more self-hatred, which makes you self-harm more. It was just this like vicious cycle of like hatred and shame and guilt that I could not get out of. And it, it really did get worse. It was definitely an addiction that, and I, when I realized that I just felt even more shameful and even more broken. So it was just this horrible cycle that I was really stuck in. Mm-hmm. How long did you self-harm? I mean, that's, that's 14 years of that I can't speak about the things that's going on in my family. I don't know how this is what's going on with my emotions. This is how I am coping with all of it. And it's just, again, layers and layers of shame and secrecy on all the things, not being able to verbalize any of that. And I'm so compassionate towards this issue of self-harm because by the way, we self-harm in so many different ways. I think I said that earlier. Sometimes it's cutting. Sometimes it's drugs. Sometimes it's sex. Sometimes it's it's food, excessive dieting or working out. There, there's just all kind drinking. There's all kinds of ways in which we self-harm. Yeah. For anybody out there that is is a, a cutter, I'm so compassionate because what you're just saying is I've got all of this inside and I just don't know how to verbalize it. And so this is the skin, the the pain is representative of that. Yeah. And oftentimes it's been my experience working with children. I would hear parents say, well, they just want attention or they're just doing this because their friends do it. It's not held in a really compassionate space. There's a lot of denial there. So, but for you, what was that experience like the revelation of it? How did it, I don't know if it's ended yet or, but what was that journey like for you in in terms of getting help or, or whatever? What was that like? I didn't want to talk about it with my parents again, because at that point in my life, my parents and I didn't talk about anything. Like you would never know that now, but then we never did. And I didn't want that reaction of, oh, you're just being dramatic. You're doing this for attention. And I also didn't want to have to talk about why I was doing it in general. Um, So I never told my parents, my mom um, found my uh, journal 
one time. I have always loved to write. I'm a writer and I had, you know, just written some pretty like deep things and she found it and she read it. And that was absolutely humiliating for me. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating. And she was freaking out. Uh, My parents obviously weren't equipped to deal with this and that's not their fault they just weren't and that's okay. So they were freaking out and it made me feel like I was crazy, like that I needed to go to like a mental hospital or something. I remember one time my mom asking me if I was still doing it and I was like, I'm not. And she didn't believe me. And I like took off all my clothes. It was just like a lot of like genuinely traumatic moments after they found out because they didn't know what to do again, which is not their fault. So I, by the time they found out, I don't think it was as severe as it had been at one point because it almost got to the point where it just like wasn't even working anymore. Uh, Not because I was getting better, but because I just felt really, really numb in life. And so I started going to therapy, which wasn't very helpful. And I also went to the doctor and I remember to get on antidepressants. And I remember the first thing the doctor asking me was if I had done it for attention which really um, upset me because I was like, oh, here's another space. It's not safe even remotely for me to talk about. So I got on antidepressants and I started going to therapy and I started having more open dialogues with my parents about things. The medication helped a lot, but that also made me feel shame because I was like, well, now I can only be functioning if I'm taking medication. It was a really long process. I'm 18 now. So I guess that was only four years ago. So maybe it's not relatively long, but it was just this process of every day waking up and committing to myself that I can find love within me and that I do deserve to not stay here at this rock bottom place. And I still struggled with the self-harm thing on and off, on and off. But I learned to give myself grace for that and to tell myself, you're recovering from something and this is a journey and it's okay to mess up. And that is something I learned in therapy that was helpful was to just give myself grace in recovery and on my journey. I haven't self-harmed in, gosh, two and a half years probably, but the people-pleasing thing is still something I really struggle with. And I still catch myself using that as a coping mechanism, but at least now I can recognize what it is so I can help myself um, get out of that. But yeah, that was, uh, I'm still on the journey. You know, I can't sit here and be like, oh yeah, I, I am good now. Cause I'm not, but I'm so much better and I have grace and hope for myself. So that's how I've been working out of it. So the, I was so in my head when you were speaking about the giving yourself grace and like, you can be here. And so how I heard that is I can feel my feelings. Yeah. It's okay. And and me existing in this world with all of these deep feelings, it's okay. Yeah. And and sometimes I won't get things right. And sometimes I'll, I'll mess it up, but I'm okay. That's how I heard it. And that may not have been how you even was No, that's how, that's exactly what I was saying. Were you, did you ever either passively or actively consider ending your life committing suicide? 
Yeah, I definitely, um, I wouldn't have said this at the time, but I definitely was suicidal many times, not in the sense of like, okay, here's my plan and I'm going to do this tomorrow. But there were so many times where I felt like, why am I still doing this? Like, why am I still here? Why am I still getting up? Like, I I wish I wasn't, you know, which at the time I wouldn't have considered suicidal, but obviously it is. Um, I just couldn't admit that to myself, but yeah, that was definitely a big feeling I had. And that's why I'm really grateful that my mom did snoop through my stuff (laughs) because I think that if I had never had, would have spoken these things out loud, it would have just been internalized more and gotten to a point that would have been really, really dangerous for me. Yeah. Big, big invasion of privacy. Yes. (laughs) But maybe the catalyst to what saved you in that moment and getting you to talk to someone. Yeah. I've got a lot of thoughts on that because there's so many stories of, of, like I said before, when, when, when kids are self-harming and they get a reaction that is traumatizing and so abusive, you know, in terms of the nature of how their parents or caretakers handled the issue and you didn't you didn't get all of that it was we don't know what to do we're freaking out yeah yeah (laughs) we don't know how to handle any any of this but they they knew that okay we don't know what to do so let's at least take you to somebody that that can help you yeah so going to therapy as a 14 year old I want to know like when you say it wasn't like super helpful or it wasn't that (laughs) great of an experience um what are the things that kind of stick out to you in that moment because I think that other therapists listening need to hear this I think part of it was was me I remember genuinely feeling like oh my gosh I can't tell her all these things because that's gonna bother her it's gonna put burden on her when that's her job, I was just so stressed out about making someone else feel burdened with my problems. It, it was bad. Um, so part of it was me not being willing to be open. But with that, I feel like my first therapist, I remember her also asking me if I was doing this for attention, which I guess I don't know if that's they have to ask that or what. Um, so immediately that rub me the wrong way. And I didn't feel safe. And then I remember one time telling her, like, I just, I don't feel like talking about this right now. Like, can we talk about something else? And her pretty much telling me like, no, you're here to talk about this. And I was like, I feel like I didn't have any control over what I was allowed to say or not say, which made me feel really violated. And I'd I'd already felt violated and felt like I didn't have control over myself. So that was awful, <laughs> genuinely. And then I went to another therapist who was better than that, was a bit more professional, but I didn't feel a lot of like compassion from her. She, I felt like I was talking to like a statue that was like nodding and like writing things. And I was like, are we even two people having a conversation right now? So it was awkward. I felt really awkward. And so I quit <laughs> and I didn't go back. It wasn't great. Yeah. And I know that there are some therapists that have made this mistake. And so these examples will will resonate with some people and probably some people that have been in therapy. And it's, again, the reason why when we talk about why people walk away, your safe spaces are your family. Safe spaces can exist in school. Safe spaces can exist in churches. Safe spaces should always exist in the therapy and medical, mental, mental health and, and medical environment. And so there was a lack of safe spaces and no, she or they are not supposed to ask, are you attention seeking? (laughs) 
<laughs> Noted. <laughs> yes. It's in our ethical code. It is literally stated in black and white that that client autonomy should be the priority. Gotcha. <laughs> should always be the priority. You get to decide. We can we can state this is our recommendation, but at the end of the day, you always get to decide and 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 it's our responsibility to make sure that you always feel safe and empowered. Yeah. Because therapy is you're already vulnerable. I am really grateful that however you managed to keep going and to find your way that you did so despite the harm that was done in those spaces. Yeah. So, but I want to go back to you saying that you learn to give yourself grace. Tell me a little bit more about what it looks like to give yourself grace. Yeah, I think it um, has to do with the people pleasing thing. And I really, I would let people walk all over me uh, because I wanted to make them happy. I wanted their needs to be met. I wanted them to receive grace and for them to receive love. And I thought to do that, I had to sacrifice um, my own mental health and my own needs and my own grace and my own love. I remember one time I was in the kitchen with my mom and I was telling her about this issue I was having with somebody and I was just so hurt by them. But like, God forbid, I tell them that. And my mom was like, Grace, you can be kind and loving while simultaneously being strong and sticking up for yourself. And that like hit me like a wave because I was like, oh my gosh, maybe she's right. Maybe I can still be kind and loving and a good friend while also saying, hey, I have boundaries and I needed to be treated like a person as well. And that changed my whole perspective. And I, that's when I started giving myself grace and allowing uh, other people to give me love and allowing myself to give me love. And also allowing myself to speak up and say, I don't like that. I don't like when you talk to me like that. I love you, but here's a boundary I'm putting up for myself. And that's where I really was able to grow in my confidence and my self-love and really figure out who I was as a person because before I was just living for everybody else. So yeah, that was really groundbreaking for me. That is groundbreaking. Yes. Yeah. Oh, mom. Yeah, I know. There she goes. <laughs> in your hard moments, even now, and maybe even back back then, at 16 years old, uh, what were your sources of encouragement or, or tender places? Where did that exist for you? I, like I said earlier, I like to write. And when I began writing a lot, that was a new coping mechanism for me that was really, really helpful. And when I would write, I felt like I was in a safe place, place with myself. And eventually my mom as well. At first we had a really rocky start with all of that, but then she started opening up about, uh, to me about her things. She's a really big safe space for me as well as my dad later on as well. And then when I finally found like one or two good friends who I was a friend to, but they were also a friend to me and they respected my boundaries and I respected theirs, that became a safe space as well. Um, so yeah, I really, I found them and that was a saving grace for me. Awesome. And you just answered my question in terms of safe places. Was school ever a safe place for you? So I, <laughs> I didn't really go to school. I was home. I started being homeschooled in sixth grade. So I guess I did go to school in elementary school. I don't think that was ever really a safe place because that's where I was on my like people pleasing peak, you know, seeking out all the kids. And then I was homeschooled. So there was no school. And then I did attend a school uh, for a year or two of high school, which was definitely not a safe space for anything. It was like a very like conservative regiment Christian school. So that was, that's a whole other thing. So no school was never like a safe space. That's important. The reason I asked is because 
again, when we when we look at safe spaces, there's teachers, there's administrators and guidance counselors and, you know, all of these different coaches and different people. And, and then there's the the culture, just the peer culture, right, that that exists mm-hmm. and the who's in and the who's out and just trying to feel your way amongst, you know, everybody else yeah. and the comparison. And there's just so much that exists there that oftentimes what I've also found uh, with the people that I work with is that school can be a trigger. And so it's like when you finally get home away from all of that, it's like, okay, you know, I can let out my frustration, my pain in that way. If you are thinking of somebody that, you know, maybe going through and and they're self-harming now, uh, what would you want them to know? I would want them to know that I think that I'm trying to think of when I was in that situation, what I would have wanted someone to tell me. And all I would have wanted was someone to just say, hey, I see this pain. I see it. And I'm willing to sit with you in it. I don't want to drag you out of it. I don't want to tell you that it's going to be okay. I just I, I just want to tell people like I see you and your pain is valid, but that pain isn't forever. As cliche as that sounds is that where you're at right now is not where you're going to be sitting the rest of your life. But this is where you're at right now. And this is a journey and I'm willing to just sit with you there. Yeah. Yeah. Listening, validating, encouraging. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. How can parents, parents who are listening, how can they show up a little bit better? <laughs> I think educating themselves. I think, you know, really taking the time to educate yourself on self-harm, especially as it relates to children and, you know, childhood trauma and childhood depression, childhood anxiety, so that you're equipped to have conversations because I love my parents, but the way that they handled um, or the reaction that they had to me was really traumatic And that could have been solved if they had been educated on the issue prior. Just educate yourself, you know, put that time into your kid. And in terms of families that struggle with communication or there's all these things that they're not talking about, what would you have to say that parents could do a little bit better regarding that, if anything? I mean, you just got to talk. You have to. And I know some people really struggle with communication and I'll be sensitive to that. But at the end of the day, this is your family. And sometimes your kids' lives depend on you being open and honest with them. You don't have to say every single thing, but just like my mom sharing with me, like, yeah, I've been on antidepressants before. That was a big deal for me because I was like, okay, my mom's stable. My mom's fine. She has a good life. That can be me. So just, just those little things are so important. I love that. You're so good. (laughs) Thank you. You're so good. (laughs) Having that experience. What also stuck out to me is the the aloneness and what yeah. you were experiencing. How does that impact you today in terms of how you show up for yourself and others? Uh, the lonely thing is hard. It's really hard. And I still struggle with that because I've moved like 20 times. Um, and so I've dealt with the trying to make new friends a lot. And there's always that lonely period before you make new friends. And I'm kind of in that right now. Thankfully, it's not like the depression loneliness and the shame loneliness that I was feeling before. This sounds really cliche, but in those lonely moments, like that is when I was able to love myself the best because I wasn't focusing on everybody else. I wasn't focusing on needing to be there for everybody and to be the thing that everyone needs me to be. I was like, okay, here I am with Grace. What does Grace need? And that's when I was able to really get to know myself, talk to myself and love myself the best. So I really, when I'm lonely, I try to remember that. That's huge. Yeah. 
in terms of being how you show up for your family, I think that all experiences, even the ones that hurt us the most, it helps us to to really be there for other people and in a real way. Yeah. So I don't know if if for you has your own experiences shaped how you show up for for your friends and for your your family. Yeah. Definitely has. I remember when I was really going through this and people would tell me, oh, well, it's okay because you're going to be able to help other people one day. And I remember being pissed off when they, I'm like, I don't care. Like, I just want to be okay. So I hated that. And I still think that's a horrible thing to say to somebody, but it genuinely has helped me be empathetic towards people. And I have friends and family that deal with this. And um, I'm able to say, I, I get it. Let me sit with you here because I get it. And I know how you feel. So it's helped me to have that real empathy and not the, oh, I just want to fix you. So I'll feel better about myself, <laughs> which I'm happy about. Cause that was awful. <laughs> Everything you're saying is just, um, it's like making my heart like jump. I mean, it's just <laughs> in a good way. Yeah, okay, cause we, yeah. we, <laughs> no, I got some issues. <laughs> But I'm just listening to you and I'm like, I'm looking at my questions and I'm like, she's answering it all. Like she's so (laughs) good. And so, okay. So, so I want to ask about this and you turned 16. Yeah. You've had all of these experiences and what I have learned about you is, is not a whole lot, but, but I know that, that in terms of when we talk about showing up and, and becoming who we're meant to be, you're big on social justice. Yes. You're, you're big on intersectionality. You're not restricting who you come in contact with and who you advocate for on the basis of their socioeconomic level or their race or their sexuality. Yes. You have spent the past two years exploring what it means to be a social justice warrior advocate yes. out in big and small places, wherever. And I know that's hasn't even really, you're still so young. Your journey hasn't even really begun yet. I mean, not really, (laughs) but in thinking about who you are, I can't help but to also think of when you know great pain, you're able to, to really identify with others in great pain. So advocating and speaking out in support of Black Lives Matter speaking out on all kinds of really harmful, speaking out on church trauma, church abuse, had it not been for the trauma that you experienced and the ways in which you were, were shamed. Yeah. Would you have gone in that direction? I think that's a great question. And I, and I've thought about this before as well. My dad and I have talked about this, I think, and it's crazy because you've only known me the past, you know, not too long. So you know who I am. Yeah. So you know who I am right now, but if you were to have met me like a couple years ago, I was so terrified to like speak and to talk. I, I could not go up and order like a sandwich at a restaurant. Like it was trauma. Like it, and I still have issues with that today. And so having to overcome those things helped me find my voice and my confidence to speak up for myself, which then in turn allowed me to be like, okay, I can do this for myself. Now, where else can we put this energy? Because there's a lot of things that need to be talked about and fought for. So Mm -hmm. where can we go now? And the confidence that I found in loving myself helped me slide into that social justice fight, really. And and I really am thankful for that. So- yeah. Yeah. And and if you've ever been told that your voice should be silenced or or that your voice isn't welcome or not allowed, for some of us, we understand how important our voice is. Yeah. That's what I get from you. Your voice is extremely, extremely powerful. 
when you think about your own personal and professional goals and how are you hoping to kind of impact the world or, or even just your community or the people within your sphere of influence, how are you hoping to kind of make an impact? Well, I want to be a politician when I get older. That's like my dream and life. And I, there's people that are worth being fought for. And there's like, you were talking about how, you know, when you have your voice taken from you, you understand how important it is. And there's so many people whose voices are being taken from them and are, and are taken. And I'm not saying this to be like a savior and like, Oh, I'm going to come speak for everybody. But I want people to be able to find that power within themselves that I have found. And I want to do it through uh, political justice because I'm kind of a, political nerds. So it all just comes together (laughs) nicely. Uh, But that's so important for me. And that's, that's where I want to go. That's my next step. Yeah. I think it is important. And as I listen to you being so young, already on this journey and saying, look, two years ago, (laughs) this is who I was. Yeah. And, and Andrea and I, your mom and and I (laughs) were talking this morning and I'm just trying to figure out how did they slip into my life? Like, (laughs) Like what is happening? And but it was it was in divine timing because had this been two years ago, I would have never met you. Yeah, it's true. And I think that when I when I am around you, and when when I am even when Andre when she's talking about you, and just all the things when you and I are talking, what I see is this person who is a young adult. And you faced your fears in a lot of ways. That's a that's a lifelong process. And you're already learning to give yourself grace, learned ways in which you have to be able to say, this is who I am. Yeah. Yeah. Not making any apologies, not going to change for you. Yep. This is who I am. And this is what I believe in. And we don't have to hate each other because we believe differently. But for me, this is this is what I believe in. And the act of doing that even for people who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, they never get to that point because of fear. And so I, if, you, if it's okay, and I know we're short on time, um, but can you share a little bit of your journey as it relates to social justice? And, and I know you shared it on your mom's podcast, but just as much as you're comfortable with in terms of two years ago, you were this person, your parents were, you know, and <laughs> Trump supporting conservatives. Oh gosh. I would have never. Oh, I know. I'm so sorry. I would just like to make an apology statement first. It's okay. No oh, apologies needed. <laughs> no apologies oh. needed. But yeah. but but what? Because you were the catalyst for up, you know, for the change within your family. Yeah. What were a couple of things that shifted you in that direction of of yeah. realizing, oh, this this way of life or this belief system is not altogether correct yeah. or biblical or whatever. Yeah. Um, first thing that comes to my mind is just people. I was given some really crazy opportunities to go different places and meet different people. Um, I spent a week in Germany talking to refugees from Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq. I went to the border in Mexico and spent time talking with families who had tried to immigrate to America and were sent back. Um, I also took a lot of time to read people's stories, to listen to people's stories on podcasts. And slowly the 
numbers and the graphs that I would see on the news at night turned into faces and names. And that changes everything. It changes everything. When you have, oh, this percentage of uh, refugees from Mexico were sent back. Here's a graph, whatever. When I can tell you their names and their stories and their families, I can't ignore it anymore. And it's not a game anymore. It's not politics anymore. It's, it's real life people. And that's something I, I couldn't turn away from. And so I would bring that to family dinner. I'd say, let's talk about this thing I learned or this book I read or this person I met. And my parents would never tell me to be quiet. That's one thing they never, ever, ever would tell me to do was be quiet. They would allow me to speak and they would have these conversations with me. Yeah. It just slowly transformed into my parents saying, okay, well now I want to read that. I want to do research on that. Even if it was like my dad saying, well, I'm going to read this to prove you wrong. Ended up being okay, now I understand what you're saying. So it was people. It was nothing that I did. It was it was people being vulnerable with me and allowing me into their lives and to hear their stories. Were you ever fearful of if I say my point of view, if I disagree, if I state that, that I don't really like Trump anymore or that I have a problem with this policy or this statement that he made or the administration, were you ever fearful of, of being rejected or being criticized? I was very fearful of that because of the people pleasing thing. Um, not in my family. My family was great, but in my church, I was very, very involved in my youth group, which was very conservative. And um, when I started speaking out about things like that, I was criticized quite harshly. It was a pretty bad, actually. It, it wasn't just jokes. It was it was really bad. I kind of I kind of became a town joke. And this is not to say, oh, woe is me. I'm fine. It was not the end of the world, but it allowed me to really get over the people pleasing thing. Cause I was yeah. like, Oh, I'm not pleasing anybody anymore. <laughs> and this is what I believe in. And this is who I am. And so we're just going to run with it at this point. As I think about the people that I work with and the people that I've heard other stories from Gary, yeah. when you start to really ask questions, because oftentimes in church environments, we're not allowed to ask questions. Yeah. And a lot of families are not allowed to ask questions or to believe differently because there are some families in which there's this belief that, well, I raised you and this is what I believe as a parent and you're not allowed to think or feel differently. And it sounds like you were allowed within your family to have that autonomy. Yeah, which was great, which I'm really thankful for. I'm just super proud of, of who you are today. Thank you. I think that it just takes a lot of freaking guts to just say, this is, this is who I am. This is what I believe. Even when I look at you, I see a young woman who a lot of people may, may look at you and, and believe that maybe you've had the easy life or maybe not really get the full impact of that. Yeah. I, I don't look like what I've been through. Yeah. Don't, don't prejudge. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense perfectly. Who inspires you? My mom is the first person that came to my mind because while she often says that I was the one that kind of was a catalyst for her, she, the way that she has changed so much in the past three years is incredible. She is so strong. She is so smart. She's really funny. I, I just love her and she inspires me every day. Oh, also my grandma. I have to, sorry. I have to say my grandma, my grandma is, I love my grandma so much and she's been through a lot this year. And as a strong woman, she inspires me so much. A lot of women politicians inspire me, um, not necessarily because I agree with them, but because they 
worked hard mm -hmm. in a space that was not made for them, especially women of color who are politicians. Are you kidding me? Like you did that. You got there. They really inspire me. Those are the first people that came to my mind. What makes you, who or what makes you laugh? My mom makes me laugh really not to say her again, but I think she's so funny because she doesn't try to be funny. She just says things and you're like, what are you saying? <laughs> it's her personality. You yeah. You understand. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, she makes me laugh. The office makes me laugh. Yes. <laughs> I love the office. I watch it every night. You make me laugh really hard. I swear yeah. every time I'm with you, I'm like rolling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those things. Okay. If you're listening to music and you want to move your body, you want to dance, what are you listening to? If that's even a thing for you, I don't know if you dance. I can do, I like white girl dance a little bit. You know okay. what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, I'd say like rock and roll, like classic rock and roll really makes me want to just like get up and move. It's not dancing, but it's moving. Uh <laughs> it's like ACDC, is this Metallica? Guns yeah. I don't, I don't know if that's too yeah. old. No, no, no. That's what I love. Um, okay. Bruce Springsteen, mm -hmm. Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much for, for being on my podcast. You Thank made you my so day. Thank you for having me. I love you. I love you. I love you too. Oh my God. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time.